Welcome to Marrow Masters, sponsored by Farmer Sicklis and Jansen and Cadman, a Sanofi company. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and families cope with the psychosocial challenges of bone marrow and stem cell transplant from diagnosis through survivorship. Season 7 of our Marrow Masters podcast series focuses on chronic graft-versus-host disease and the long haul some survivors face. Unfortunately, chronic GVHD can last for months, even years. This season, we dig deep and hope to provide some relief. We talk to the experts, from healthcare professionals to survivors and caregivers, about the long-term struggles, setbacks, victories, treatment options, and more. We offer an abundance of resources and address all kinds of GVHD-related issues, including despair, advocacy, mobility, nutrition, sleep issues, caregiving, reproductive and sexual health, intimacy, and more. Our guests share their expertise and insight to help those frustrated and struggling with chronic GVHD to persevere and live their best life. Here's your host, Executive Director of the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, Peggy Burkhardt. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have Dr. Al-Jawari of Mass General in Boston with us. Dr. Al-Jawari is going to share lots of information regarding sexual health, intimacy, and fertility as it relates to being a survivor with chronic graft-versus-host disease. Welcome, Dr. Al-Jawari. Thanks so much, Peggy. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to jump right in and hear a bit from Dr. Al-Jawari about sexual health as it relates to transplant survivorship. Peggy, I'm so glad you guys are doing this topic. This is such an important topic because it's really a common, common experience that our transplant survivors struggle with. Sexual dysfunction is one of the most common side effects that occur after cancer treatment. Approximately 60 to 80 percent of transplant survivors struggle with sexual health issues uh, and concerns regarding their intimacy and fertility. Sexual health, not only is it prevalent in terms of concerns, but it's also very multidimensional in that there are a lot of causes of sexual health issues for our transplant survivors. There are biological issues related to changes in hormones and biology related to cancer treatment, including vaginal atrophy, pain with intercourse, vaginal graft versus host disease, which is a major complication after transplant where the immune system of the donor attacks the recipients. So GVHD makes actually a lot of the sexual health concerns that our women and men struggle with a lot worse in the context of survivorship. Biological issues affect our uh, male transplant recipients, including erectile dysfunction, loss of libido. But beyond all these biological changes, we should note that sexual health and intimacy also are affected by our emotions, our psychosocial well-being, and how patients are doing and dealing with the stress of going through a cancer treatment. Intimacy and loss of intimacy is very common as you go through a transplant. Your relationship and the dynamic that you have with your loved ones, with your partner, changes in the context of being a caregiver and a patient rather than an individual and a partner. And so all these changes, both social, emotional, psychosocial, as well as biological, really impact our survivors and their overall well-being from a sexual health perspective, intimacy. This is beyond the fertility concerns that we have as a result of cancer treatment. So this is a very common issue. I think we need to do a better job of talking about it and normalizing it, validating how common it is, and more importantly, addressing it in our clinical practice. I couldn't agree more. Dr. Al-Jawari, we hear this so often from patients, and I am thrilled that we are addressing this. What would you recommend for patients regarding the best way to talk to their spouse or their provider about their sexual health and intimacy issues after transplant? 
Yeah, Peggy, I think the first piece of all of this is really recognizing that this is common and normalizing that talking about this is okay. I think in our culture, talking about sexual health and intimacy is still a little bit taboo. And the reality is, it shouldn't be, right? This is a biological change. These are changes that are occurring as a result of cancer treatment. Just like we talk about neuropathy or pain or other issues that our cancer survivors struggle with. So I think number one thing to think about is I would urge our transplant survivors to think about this, to think about how important this aspect of their life is to them and to bring it up in the clinical encounter. And there's a lot of ways to just bring this up. And I would say patients can bring this up with their physicians. They can also bring this up with their nurses, nurse practitioners, or social workers. So sometimes choosing the right member of the team that you feel most comfortable talking about these issues is also relevant. And recognize that we hear this all the time as transplant clinicians as well. The fact is, this is such a common experience that the reaction from your transplant doctor or transplant team or transplant clinician is going to be, we know this is an issue. Let me think about how we can best help you with this. So I think first, bring it up. Don't be afraid to bring it up. Just because we in the transplant clinic sometimes get busy and don't bring it up and don't put it as the number one priority on our list doesn't mean that we are not comfortable talking about it. And I would say the second piece is also, you know, Peggy, to your point, it's really important to talk about these things also with your partner and talk about both your sense of where you want to be with your intimacy, how this whole experience, the cancer experience, the transplant experience has impacted your relationship. And sometimes starting a conversation with your partner about these things can really allow you to align your goals about where you want to go and really think about this idea of transitioning back to normalcy and survivorship. There's something about that that feels incredibly gratifying for our patients and families. So just remember, as the patient going through this, I would also say that sometimes patients worry about body image concerns. How is the cancer experience has affected what they look like and how their partner perceives them from an, an attraction perspective? It's funny because when I talk to partners, what they worry about is, gosh, am I putting too much pressure on my loved one? Am I really, really struggling with maybe causing them an infection after a transplant? They're worried about their partner, right? They're worried about the patient. They want to make sure they're okay in all of this. And those are often the barriers for them to engage in sexual activity. And so having a conversation and understanding the barriers on both sides is really key into figuring out where you guys want to go as a couple as a patient and a partner in your relationship and sexual health. Absolutely. You know, as you're saying this, I'm thinking too how different this role is in the younger person versus the older patient. And when I think of the younger person, I also think of the burden of worrying about their fertility. They're fighting for their lives and then they have this other big thing, elephant in the room. What if I want to have children someday? How do you address the fertility issue with your patients? Peggy, that's such a critical question because often it's too late after a transplant to talk about fertility concerns. And I would say one of the hardest things when we take care of patients with blood cancers is a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times, patients present very acutely and they need treatment right away. And that puts pressure on our capacity to address fertility concerns right away. However, I will have to say that even in the context of diseases like acute leukemia that are very acute, it is really, really helpful for us as a community of blood cancer clinicians to first think about this young patient, 
think about the impact of these high doses of chemotherapy that we give on fertility and simply ask the question, get these patients the counseling that they need to be able to make educated and informed decisions about uh, their fertility and what they want to pursue when it comes to fertility preservation. Most of the time, we have time to get them to see the experts, to at least have a conversation about what the options are, and that's important. And I'd say on the patient side, empowering our patients to bring up these issues is really critical. The time to bring this up is at the time of diagnosis, Peggy. It's not actually at the time prior to transplant. Because prior to transplant, these patients have already gotten a good amount of chemotherapy coming to transplant. So our hope is really to empower our patients to really think about these issues very, very early. And it's hard. It's overwhelming time at the time of diagnosis to think about your fertility concerns. So I think we have to work with both patients and providers to make this at the forefront. Listen, I'm an oncology clinician. I may not be able to have all the answers about fertility, but I know my colleagues in reproductive endocrinology can help. And I know getting them to have a conversation, having a fertility doctor talk to a patient right before making decisions can make really a big, big impact on the choices they make when it comes to their fertility preservation. Oh, this is great that we're discussing this. Let's get back to the GVHD sufferers. You know, we hear so often, I just don't feel good. And we all know when you don't feel good, intimacy is not top of mind, top of the list. There's got to be other ways for the caregiver and the survivor to navigate this. It makes me think just sitting close to each other, just that touch, that knowing that they are loved, knowing that they can vent and that person's not going to walk away. Maybe we should talk a little bit about some of the issues when it's the long haul with GVHD. How do you try to get that connection back? That's such an important point, Peggy, because as you mentioned, a lot of our patients with graft-versus-host disease have a lot of fatigue, a lot of inflammation-related symptoms, and maybe sexual intercourse is simply just not what they want or need at the moment as they struggle with their illness. I will say that to your point, we often, when we think about sexuality, we focus on sexual intercourse and physical intimacy, and that's our number one thing that we focus on. But the reality is intimacy is a broad concept, and there's a lot of issues related to non-physical intimacy that sometimes make us feel closer to our partners than anything else that we do. Think about the time when, before COVID, when we could go on a date and actually have a dinner outside, but really talk about a romantic dinner at home spending time where you watch a movie with your partner, holding hands, a lot of these things that we just simply don't do, we get into our routine and not think about. I often encourage my patients and their partners to think about some gratitude letters, you know, thanking each other for getting through this terrible and awful ordeal as a way to enhance intimacy. So there are a lot of exercises, little things that people can do and integrate into their routine to get out of this concept of being a patient and a caregiver and really think about themselves as partners. And I'd say that non-physical intimacy part and even little physical intimacy, like holding hands, cuddling and watching a movie, those things actually matter so much more than sex does in terms of connection with your partner. Oh, you, I don't think you could have said that any better. It also makes me think of a story. We had a couple where this woman just loved to make pies. Post-transplant, she didn't have the energy. She didn't have the, she just couldn't stand that long. 
And her loving husband said, well, let's make a pie together. He learned how to make pies, and it became something that they did together. And it was just, to me, that is such a loving example of meeting your partner halfway. And I'm sure those are going to be the memories someday of a lifetime was the pie making. Agreed. And this is exactly right, Peggy, is how do we really recenter our relationship on the things that we value and care about and the things that bring us joy and pleasure? That's what it's about when it comes to reconnecting and building intimacy. And talk about the love, right? Talk about the love that you saw in that relationship and the giving that that partner had in sitting down and doing that pie together. That love, that intimacy is more important than having sex at night, right? So I do think those things are really, really critical. And we, I think, get into a routine and we get into habits and behaviors that are hard to break. And that's really one of the main uh, things that we need to work on. It's not that this intimacy and working on your intimacy takes so much time. It's the little things that matter. I, I just couldn't agree more. I hope this helps so many people feel less alone. It can be a lonely experience going through transplant, even with the best of caregivers. So to have that love and support, there's so many ways to get it. And I'm just glad we're covering that. Do you have any stories, perhaps, of a just a survivor that was maybe going through a rough patch and was bold enough to ask the question and your team was able to help them? So, Peggy, I do a lot of research on sexual health and intimacy. That's one area of topic that I study. And I want to tell you how I started doing this, because I'm actually a transplant oncologist who does a lot of supportive care research but never thought I would be a sex doctor or thinking about sexual health so much in my day-to-day -day life. And sure. the story is I was taking care of this woman who was in her early 30s. And she was a woman with leukemia that I met. Uh, I met her and her husband. And, you know, there are some patients that you meet. Maybe they look like you. Maybe they behave like you. Maybe they're close to your age. We just had such a special bond from the moment I met her. And I took her through transplant and we had a great connection, you know, during transplant and after transplant. Peggy, as you know, we see patients once a week. So I got to really know her and know everything about her, about her family, about her partner, about how they met. And it was about two years out from her transplant. She just had her bone marrow biopsy that showed that her cancer is in remission and she's likely cured of her leukemia. And we were celebrating clinic. We said, you know, this is a big milestone. Congratulations. I was maybe three years out of my fellowship. I was still a young oncologist at the time with a lot less gray hair. And at the time, <laughs> I, you know, was like, congratulations. This is fantastic. And I was about to leave the room. And she asked me and said, Dr. Aldewari, I'm sorry to stop you before you go. But is it OK for me to kiss my husband now? And I oh. had a mortified <laughs> look on my face. And here I am, the supportive doctor who cares about the emotions of patients, who really got to know this woman so well. And I recognize that I've never had that conversation with her. I've never brought it up. I've never asked her about how she felt about her sexual health, how things were going when it comes to that department. And I turned around, sat down and got, God, we got to do something about this, right? Yes. So here's this woman who, you know, got through transplant at a young age and at two years out from transplant was still worried that she may get an infection by kissing her husband. 
And so we have to do better than that for our patients and their families. And the reality is, it's not because I don't care about this patient, don't care about her needs. It simply wasn't the top priority on my end. And now what I think we should be doing is honestly screening for sexual health issues immediately after transplant and talking about it at day 30 and day 100 so that we actually educate our patients about what they can and can't do. So that is actually what made me a sex doctor. That encounter is what got me to do this type of work. There was no coincidence there. You were supposed to hear that question and you were supposed to be so moved to do what you do. I think that is just a perfect example. And kudos to you for sitting back down and having that conversation. We get it. You are busy saving lives at that point. So it seems like it should be such a back burner thing. But I think you're right. Screening would really help just to even know if there are any questions, you know, and maybe being able to write it down versus trying to say it to your doctor. Absolutely. And now we are in the digital health world and digital media world. And as you know, most of our patients communicate electronically with us on a regular basis, right? Through gateway, through uh, electronic health record systems, or even through email. And so sometimes if it's hard to talk about the topic, it is completely appropriate and fine to ask the question, write it down, send in an email and a secure message to your clinician. And they'll probably say, hey, let's talk about this when we meet next time. Absolutely. Oh, this has been terrific. I think at this point, we've covered most everything. Do you have anything else you might want to add as we wrap things up? Peggy, I would say the only thing I would add is that I just want people to know that we're really working on addressing the sexual health and intimacy concerns of our patients and their partners. We are thinking about really innovative solutions to get interventions to patients' home when it comes to sexual health. For example, our team had built a mobile app that is designed to address sexual health and intimacy concerns and actually have a lot of those intimacy exercises, Peggy, that we talked about. How do you rebuild that connection with your partner? And so our hope is really to scale those, to disseminate those, to study those, and to establish other ways to reach our transplant survivors, our patients with graft-versus-host disease, who might be less comfortable bringing this to the clinic, but really want to address this issue, and it's a really important issue to them. So I just want all of your listeners to know that this is an issue that we're going to make progress on. And hopefully we'll have less and less of those mortified stories that I gave you where a woman (laughs) asked me two years after transplant whether she can kiss her husband or not. Is this app available now or is it something that's going to be available in the future? It's under study, but will be available in a few months. So we can potentially share it after the trial ends in the next few months. And when that app is available, we'll go back and add it to our show notes. Dr. El-Jawari, I would like to thank you again for sharing your expertise and your passion about this subject. Is there anything else you might want to add? No, I just want to thank you so much for highlighting this important topic. And I'd like to thank the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link for the opportunity to share our story and our passion for addressing these issues. Thank you again. This has been the Marrow Masters Podcast. If you know someone who would benefit from the information in our show, please share this episode with them via text, email, or social media. Don't miss an episode of our show. Follow the Marrow Masters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. To connect with the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, visit nbmtlink.org or follow the link in our show notes. The Marrow Masters podcast is produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts.